This morning we're continuing our verse-by-verse study in the book of Matthew that we are calling Christ is King. How many of you are thankful that Christ is King? And we serve the greatest King, the holiest King, the most just King, our righteous King, a loving King. And so this morning we're going to be in Matthew chapter 4. And we're going to be continuing where we left off last week. We're going to be in verses 12 through 17. And so two weeks ago, if you can remember, I spoke on Matthew chapter 3 where we looked at Jesus' baptism, where he was baptized by John the Baptist. And in that moment, he was anointed by the Holy Spirit for ministry. He was confirmed for ministry by God the Father when God said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then last week we saw that right after his baptism, that he was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And Pastor Matt did a wonderful job last week showing us how Jesus overcame the temptation of the devil And how we can use that same model in our lives, empowered by the Holy Spirit to fight temptation in our lives. And so, if you weren't here last week, I want to encourage you to go online and either listen to that message or watch that message, because I truly believe it will have an impact on your life. Because all of us face temptation. Every day we're tempted to sin and... But all of us who are in Christ, we have the Holy Spirit, and so we have the power to overcome temptation. And so last week, uh, just to recap, Matt gave us uh, three keys to overcome temptation. And the first one in overcoming temptation and living a life empowered by the Spirit to fight temptation is you have to know the Word of God. And then second, you've got to apply the Word of God. But then lastly, you have to obey the Word of God. And so if that whet your appetite a little bit and you didn't hear the message last week, again, I encourage you to go online and listen to that. So this morning we're picking up right where we left off last week in Matthew chapter 4. And we're looking at verses 12 through 17. And I like it when we stand to read the, the Word of God, when we stand to read our text. So if you could all stand with me this morning for the reading of God's Word. So Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 12, it says, Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those, who, for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, I thank you that your word is alive, that your word is active, 
God, I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit this morning that Your Word would speak to us. Your Word would transform our hearts. For those who are not in Christ this morning, I pray that Your Word would convict them and draw them to Your Son. And it's in His powerful name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat this morning. And so, last week, as I said, we have just looked at Jesus' temptation. And now, in Matthew's Gospel, He is setting out into His public ministry. And if all we had was Matthew's Gospel, we would think that this going to Galilee came right off of the heels of His temptation of his time in the wilderness. In fact, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of those Gospels, they go straight from his temptation in the wilderness to his time of ministry in Galilee. However, there's about a nine-month to one-year gap between verses 11 and 12 of Matthew chapter 4. And we have to examine the Gospel of John to see what Jesus was up to during this time. So I'm not going to do a a deep dive in this, but John, he records uh, this time of ministry in chapters 1 through 4 of his gospel. And it's during this time where Jesus performs his first miracle in Cana, where he turns the water into wine. It's also during this time where he travels to Judea and he meets with Nicodemus and he has that conversation with Nicodemus on what it takes to be born again. And then we also have John 3.16 that we see that takes place in between the temptation and his public ministry here in Galilee. And then John tells us in John chapter 4 that Jesus, as he travels to Galilee, he stops through Samaria. Remember, it says that he had to travel through Samaria. And then in John chapter 4, we have the story of Jesus with the woman at the well. And so about a year now has passed since Jesus's temptation. And so now going back to verse 12, it says, now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Now, something interesting here is that Jesus found out that John had been arrested in the same way that everyone else found out about his arrest. It says that he heard that John had been arrested. The reason I highlight this for us today is to show us that Jesus, yes, while he was fully God, he was also fully man. And we have no record that I know of of Jesus ever using his supernatural power to accomplish something that could be done by ordinary means. And so Jesus here in this instance, he hears of John the Baptist being arrested. Jesus lived this life on earth as a human, just like you and me. He grew tired. He got hungry. He had to eat. He had to sleep. More than likely, he was hangry from a time or two, like we've experienced. So just with these two words here, he heard, we're reminded of the humanity of Christ. Paul says in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 7, 
Starting in verse 5, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. And this is important for us to understand that Jesus lived as a human on earth because when we see examples like last week of Jesus overcoming temptation empowered by the Spirit, we can see that and know that we too can do the same. If, if Jesus used his supernatural power to overcome temptation, there wouldn't be a lot of hope for us to do the same. But Jesus, in his human form, empowered by the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that all of us have living within us, overcame temptation. And so this is important for us to understand and encouraging for us to understand that Jesus lived his life here on earth as a human. Because it shows us that we too can die to our flesh. We too can live a life empowered by his Spirit we can accomplish the plans and purposes of God in our lives. And so Jesus, he hears of John the Baptist's arrest. And this ended John's ministry. After John was arrested, he was later beheaded in prison. He was killed in prison. This was the last of John's ministry. And so John the Baptist's ministry is has come to a close. And if you can remember, John was the king's herald. John was the one who paved the way for the Messiah. John was the one who went out in the streets proclaiming a baptism of repentance. And so now that John's ministry has come to a close, the king's ministry starts to take off. And this is fulfilling what John said of Jesus in John chapter 3, verse 30 where John the Baptist says, He, Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. And so as John's ministry has decreased completely, it's come to an end. Now the ministry of Jesus is increasing, and His ministry is taking off here in Galilee. And so Jesus travels back to the region of Galilee, and this is the region where Jesus grew up. Jesus grew up in the town of Nazareth in the region of Galilee, and Joseph, the Jewish historian, he, he tells us that Galilee had somewhere between two to three million people there at the time. And it was full of these little towns. He estimates up to 200 towns in the region of Galilee, all having about 15,000 or less in population. And so this is where Jesus is establishing his ministry. In verse 13, it says, And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So when Jesus first arrived at Galilee, he went to his hometown. He went to see his family. He went to stay with his family, and he had a time of ministry in Nazareth. Now, Matthew doesn't give us any detail of his time in, in Nazareth, but if you'll turn with me to Luke chapter 4, we can see what led to Jesus leaving Nazareth. Matthew tells us that Jesus leaves Nazareth, but he doesn't tell us 
Why? So in Matthew, uh, in Luke chapter 4, I'm going to start in verse 16. And we're going to look at Jesus' time in Nazareth. And it says, And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there was many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the, town, in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian." When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. I can just imagine being in this scene. It almost gives me chills with Jesus being handed the scroll of Isaiah and opening to this prophecy and then saying, this scripture is talking about me and I am fulfilling it right here in your presence. But in here we see Jesus' knowledge of the scripture on display. These scrolls, they didn't have chapters and verses like we do today. To see that, I believe this was Isaiah 61... He knew exactly where to go on this scroll to find this exact prophecy of himself. But it was his own people that knew him best that ran him out of town. Because they knew that this, this is Joseph's son. This was the, the boy that delivered my rocking chair to me. How could this be the Messiah? We, we've seen him grow up. We've seen him his whole life. And so going back to Matthew now, he tells us that he leaves Nazareth and he goes to Capernaum. Now, Capernaum had a thriving fishing industry. There was, uh, it was right by the Sea of Galilee. And so the Sea of Galilee had a bunch of different varieties of fish. If you wanted to 
have a good business, you would go to Capernaum and be a fisherman. And so next week, we're going to see that Jesus calls some of these fishermen to be his disciples and to join him in ministry. And so Matthew, he tells us that this journey that Jesus went on that ultimately leads him to Capernaum to set up his ministry base, that it wasn't by coincidence that he ends up here in Capernaum. That all of this was foreordained, that all of his ministry that led him up to this point, that him being kicked out of Nazareth, him arriving in Capernaum, was to fulfill what the prophet Isaiah said. So now going back to verses 14 and 15 of Matthew 4. It says, So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. He, he went to Capernaum to fulfill what the prophet Isaiah said. In verse 15 it says, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. So this prophecy is quoted from Isaiah chapter 9, the first two verses in Isaiah chapter 9. And this is the sixth Old Testament prophecy now that Matthew has shared with us to show us that Jesus is the King, that Jesus is the promised Messiah. This is the sixth prophecy that he has quoted. And here Galilee is called Galilee of the Gentiles. In Isaiah chapter 9, it's referred to Galilee of the nations. And you see, back when Israel, when they took over the promised land, when they conquered the land of Canaan, God divided the land amongst the tribes. And this part of Galilee was given to the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. However, when they went into the promised land, they failed to completely drive out the Canaanites like God had commanded them to do. God said, when you go into the land of Canaan, completely wipe out all of the enemy. Leave none alive. And he said this because the Canaanites were idol worshipers. And God didn't want any idol worship to be mixed with the worship of him. And so Naphtali and Zebulun, they failed to do this. They failed to drive out all of the Canaanites. And so ever since that time, there's always been a remnant of Gentiles living in Capernaum, living in Galilee. And then in 2 Kings chapter 15, we read of Assyria invading Naphtali and taking all of the Jews captive to Assyria. And so even more so in this moment, we have Gentiles flooding into this region of Galilee. And so during and after this captivity, the, the worship became mixed. It became this syncretistic form of worship where there was still the remnant of Jews there, but it was, their worship was mixing with the, the pagan worshipers and the, the Gentiles. And so this is the scenario that Jesus steps into to start ministering. This mixed form of worship is going on. There's Gentiles there. There's Jews there. And this mixture was also why the Galileans had a 
different accent than those in Judea. If you can remember when Peter was by the fire and he was denying Christ, someone by the fire said, you speak like one of those from Galilee. And so this is the environment now that Jesus decides to spend most of his time doing ministry in Galilee. And let's look at verse 16 again, this amazing prophecy. It says, the, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. How many of you can relate to this prophecy? We have seen a great light. We who have been lost in our sins, wandering around in the shadow of death and darkness, light has dawned in our lives. And this was prophesied hundreds of years before Jesus even came on to the scene, that he was going to be the light. Not only was it prophesied before Jesus' birth, but shortly after his birth, it was proclaimed over him as well. In Luke chapter 2, when Jesus' parents, they take him to the temple to be dedicated in obedience of the Mosaic law, the firstborn son was to be taken to be prayed over and dedicated in the temple. There was a righteous man at the temple whose name was Simeon. And Simeon had been awaiting the arrival of the Messiah. And so I want to read a few verses in Luke chapter 2. Starting in verse 26, it says, And it had been revealed to him, to Simeon, by the Holy Spirit, that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. And so this revelation to the Gentiles, this light has now come as Jesus sets up his base in Capernaum. Jesus says of himself in John chapter 8, verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is our light. (laughs) Jesus is our light. At the beginning of John's Gospel, in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, John says of Jesus, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Darkness cannot overcome the light. Light is undefeated versus darkness. And, amen. And the sun is shining today. The sun didn't lose to the darkness this morning. The sun has never had a battle with the darkness. And I was reminded of this truth of light overcoming darkness every single day as a boy when 
my mom would come into our room to wake us up for school. Right? When she wanted to wake us up, what would she do? Flip the switch. Turn on the light. We who were asleep and cozy in the darkness, having no desire for the light, the light would shine and the darkness had to leave. And unfortunately for me, I grew up always sleeping on the top bunk. And so I was the closest to the light. Unlike my older brothers, who they got to sleep on the bottom bunk, and they at least had a little bit of shade to guard themselves. And you knew my mom really meant business when before she turned on the light, she would come and pull the covers off of us so that we had no, no way to hide from the light. But darkness cannot overcome the light. And so now this great light has been revealed to the whole world as Jesus comes to reveal himself to the lost. And it has been revealed to us who were lost. Jesus chose to illuminate his light in our lives. We who were like me as a boy, cozy in our darkness, comfortable living in sin, having no desire for God, Jesus showed up and shined his light in our lives. Peter says in 1 Peter 2.9, but you, talking to those who are in Christ, so that's all of us, say that's me, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We have been called out of darkness. And so now our job as this chosen generation, this chosen nation, this royal priesthood is to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness. This is one of the reasons why we assemble every week. We gather together as saints to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, to lift him up, to exalt his name, to worship the king who has shined his light on us. And so the light has now dawned. Jesus is on the scene. He's launching his ministry now in Galilee. And so now he is going to begin preaching. If you notice in verse 17, it says Jesus went and began to preach. Jesus was a preacher. Jesus was the greatest preacher to ever live. And so what is this message? This is the first sermon we have recorded in the Gospels. Jesus knowing how the canon of Scripture would be organized, that Matthew's Gospel would be the first Gospel that we have recorded. Surely in this moment, Jesus knew that this would be our first example of His sermons preached in all of Scripture. What is the message? What is it that Jesus thinks is of, of utmost importance for us to hear. Looking at verse 17 again, it says, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, 
for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. Turn from your sin. Turn away from your sin. Go in the opposite direction of your sin. If this message sounds familiar, it's because it's the exact same message that John the Baptist had preached in Matthew chapter 3. Word for word. And so Jesus shows up in Capernaum, a city full of Jews and Gentile alike, a city that's living in darkness. And the light that He brings is a message of repentance. Notice His first message wasn't, I love you, and I want you to come with me to heaven. If you want to go to heaven, raise your hand and you're good to go. He didn't come and His first message was not, hey, I want you to be comfortable in this life and live a life of prosperity and wealth. Jesus came preaching a message of repentance. Because Jesus wasn't concerned with popularity. He wasn't concerned with making His listeners feel good. Jesus was concerned with souls. Jesus, of all people, of anyone who's ever lived, if anybody knows what hell is like, it was Jesus. So Jesus wanted to save us from hell. And so He comes preaching a message of repentance. Now, this isn't a strategy that most pastors use today as they're starting their ministry. Most don't on the first service they have. Launching a church, they don't stand up and tell everybody, if you don't repent right now, you're going to spend eternity in hell. That's not what most growth experts will tell you how to build a church. Because most churches want you to feel comfortable. Most churches want you to feel good about yourself. They want to appeal to the culture because they want sinners to come in and feel at ease and to feel comfortable. And so they don't preach a message of repentance. So they'll soften their message. But Jesus doesn't soften His message. Jesus wasn't concerned about the comfort of his listeners. Jesus was concerned about the conversion of his listeners. And so he preaches a message of repentance. And many people, they want the light that Jesus has to offer. Many people want the joy that Jesus brings. They want the peace that Jesus brings. But they want to acquire it without obeying the message that Jesus brings, this message of repentance. So repentance is necessary to receive the light. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul talks about living in darkness. Verses 11 through 14, he says, starting in verse 11, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. When the Holy Spirit convicts you of your sin and exposes your sin... 
and you repent and you place your faith and trust in Christ, in that moment, Christ shines His light on you. But it starts with repentance. And I think a lot of times in the church when repentance is brought up, and I can say this because I used to be there, where repentance would be brought up and I would kind of check out for the rest of the sermon because I would say, well, I've repented. I've said the sinner's prayer. I went to VBS every year. I don't need to hear about repentance. I've been there. I've done that. But repentance isn't a one-time thing. Repentance is a daily part of the life of the believer. Because what repentance is, it's realizing what your sin is in light of the holy God that we serve. We serve a God who is perfectly holy, perfectly just, perfectly righteous. And so our sin is heinous to God. He hates sin. And so for the believer, this lifestyle of repentance that we're called to live is one that we realize what our sin is in light of who God is. And so when we sin, it should break our hearts. It should lead us back to the cross, to cling to the cross, and to repent and turn from that sin. So this is to be part of our daily life. Martin Luther, one of the fathers of the Protestant Reformation, he had this to say about repentance. He said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Now this quote comes from the very first of Martin Luther's 95 Theses that he nailed to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany on October 31st, 1517. And it was the posting of these 95 Theses that was the spark of the Protestant Reformation. And so tomorrow, while the world is celebrating death and darkness, we celebrate the birth of the Protestant Reformation. And so if you happen to run into me tomorrow, be sure to wish me a happy Reformation Day, and I will be sure to wish you the same. But as as Martin Luther was convicted by the Holy Spirit while reading Scripture, and and as he he was a monk at the time, He was serving the Roman Catholic Church. As he was reading Scripture, he noticed that the the Catholic Church teaching on justification didn't line up with what the Word of God teaches. During this time, they they were selling indulgences to the people of the church. And these indulgences, the more you bought, the the more time off of purgatory you would acquire. And so it was during this time in 1517 where the Roman Catholic Church were, they were making a killing off of these sellings of indulgences and they were building these huge cathedrals and structures really preying on the fear of their parishioners. And so Luther wrote his 95 Theses calling the church back to repentance 
and highlighting the issues with this indulgent system. You see, Luther was wanting the church to get back to what the Bible teaches about justification. That we are saved by grace through faith. And it's not an act of works. So the Reformation was founded on this cry. The, the, in the Latin, the phrase is sola scriptura, which means scripture alone. That the word of God alone is our ultimate and final authority in our lives. Not the church, not the pope, not Rome, not our government. And speaking of repentance, I don't think it's a stretch to say that the church needs to the church today needs to repent and go back to sola scriptura. Amen. To go back to standing on the word of God alone as its ultimate authority. To look at what does God's Word say? What does His Word say about holiness? What does His Word say about loving the world? What does God's Word say about sexual immorality? What does God's Word say about the leadership of the church? What does God's Word say about His wrath and His justice? What does God's Word say about repentance and faith? So I believe we need to go back to Scripture alone. And to proclaim that Scripture alone is our ultimate authority, to, to say that is standing for the truth. Because the Word of God is the truth. Because Jesus is the Word. In John chapter 1 it said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And Jesus is the truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so to stand and say, we believe in Scripture alone is to stand for the truth. And today, to stand for the truth, it takes sacrifice. In the same way that it took sacrifice when, when the Reformation was starting as they were facing persecution and they stood on Scripture alone. For us today, as our culture is going in the complete opposite direction of the truth, totally opposite from the Word of God, to stand and proclaim the truth of God's Word is going to take sacrifice. But we need to be up for it. We need to be willing to sacrifice because there is a world out there living in darkness that needs the light of Christ. And so I pray that we would go back to completely surrendering our lives to the Word of God. And in order for the church to do this, we all hear this and we say, yes, it would be great for the church to do this. We think of the churches in America and across the world who, who aren't operating under sola scriptura. But really for the, the church as a whole to get back to this, it has to start with us individually. Because we are the church. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 27, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And so as we're on the eve of Reformation Day, I pray that our hearts would be challenged to go back to living our lives according 
and solely to the Word of God. And to do this, to obey the Word of God, it starts with repentance. Jesus' message to us today from our passage. To turn from your sin. To turn from your affections of the things of the world. To stop living your life for the world, but to live your life for Christ. To daily pick up your cross and follow Him. And as you do that, that great light that Matthew 4.16 talks about, it will expose the sin in your life and His light will come and eradicate the darkness in your life. And so as we come to a, a close this morning, if you're in here today and you've never repented of your sin, you haven't placed your faith in Christ Let me give you the words of Christ. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now you might be in here today thinking, why do I need to repent? I'm a good person. I'm I'm nice to people. I'm loving. I treat my family well. I'm a good employee. You see, God is holy. And His standard for us is the law that He gave to Moses. God's standard for us is the Ten Commandments. If any of you have ever broken just one of the Ten Commandments just once, that one sin was enough to be deserving of the eternal wrath of God. Because God cannot tolerate sin. When we break God's law, it is sin. Romans 6.23 tells us, For the wages of sin is death. There's a three-letter word here that is good news for all of us. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So yes, our, our sin is... It's unimaginable, really, how God views our sin. I don't think we'll ever truly know how God views our sin. But God offers His free gift of salvation to all of us, to all of us who repent and place our faith in Christ. You see, Jesus, He lived a perfect life as the Son of God. He lived a sinless life, a life without sin. Jesus' life was the only life that could atone for our sins. Scripture tells us that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. And so Jesus, as He went to the cross, He took your punishment for every single one of your sins, and it was placed on His back. And in that moment, God the Father crushed His perfect Son for you. He placed His wrath, His perfect wrath, His holy wrath for all of our sins on Christ. And Hebrews tells us that Jesus went to the cross for the joy that was set before Him. That Jesus saw your face as He was going to the cross. Jesus wanted to make a way for you 
to make your relationship that was broken by your sin to make it right again by his suffering. And so if you're not in Christ today, when we say repent and put your faith in Christ, what you are putting your faith in is the death and resurrection of Jesus. That his death was enough to satisfy God's wrath toward you. And that now you are made righteous. You see, when we put our faith in Christ, when we repent of our sins and we turn from our sin, God doesn't look at you anymore and see sinner. He looks at you and he sees the righteousness of his perfect son. And so this is what we trust in. This is the good news of the gospel. We don't have to live anymore condemned by our sin. When the devil comes up to you and he sneaks up on you like he often does and reminds you of your sins of the past, you can tell him to shut up and you can remind him that you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, not because of anything that you've done, but because of everything that Jesus did for us on the cross. And so if you're here today and you have not turned to Christ, I beg you to repent. Place your faith in Christ and be made new and allow the light of Christ to shine on you. Amen? Amen. And if you're in here today and you are in Christ, I ask you to live this lifestyle of repentance. Hopefully today is, is a reminder for us of what our sin is. Sin isn't a game. We're not playing games with this life. You know, the things that we preoccupy ourselves with. The, this world is so fallen. To entertain ourselves with the things of this world is to really to mess around with sin. And we cannot be doing this. We must turn from sin daily. When we sin, let it break us. Let it bring us back to the cross. So that is why each week we do have a time of communion and a time of the Lord's table. And each week we do mention to use this time to repent, to reflect on your life, to again go back to Scripture alone and make sure, let the Word of God be a mirror to you to reflect are you living your life according to His Word? And so let's be obedient to the words of Christ and let's live a life of repentance. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, stand with me as we pray. Lord, I thank You for Your Word. God, thank You for giving us this message of Christ to repent. Lord, I thank you that you are not concerned with our comfort. You are concerned with our conversion. Lord, you want us to be reconciled back to you, and so you have made a way through Christ. God, if there are those in here today who are not in Christ, I pray that they would be obedient to the convicting of the Holy Spirit right now, that they would call on you, that they would throw themselves at your at your cross, at the cross of Christ. That they would forsake of their sin, that they would leave their sin behind, and that they would embrace the light of Christ. 
God, thank you for your light. Lord, we would still be wandering around in darkness if it wasn't for you choosing us, knocking us off of our horse and saving us. So Lord, I thank you for your salvation. I thank you that you are the light. Lord, strengthen us by the power of your Holy Spirit every day. Lord, as we read your word daily and it shows us the areas of our lives that we are living in sin, God, that in that moment we would be obedient to your scripture and we would turn from our wicked ways and turn back to you. That we would receive your healing, we would receive your forgiveness, we would receive your peace. We thank you for this. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your salvation. Thank you for your light. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.